0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Kyle is uh, our super producer. He's on the Kyle? ones and twos. I said Kyle. Oh my God, Kale, Kale. My bad. I am not in my A game today. How long I have we been doing morning. this show? No, no, Kale, no. That on. was my bad. Come on
1: here. Come no, on.
0: No, no, no. Don't. <laughs> come on here. We need to address
1: this. What happened? What happened there, Kyle? <laughs>
0: I
2: don't know. I don't know. I really don't get. (laughs) Anna, how long have we been doing this?
0: (laughs) I'm sorry. I misspoke. I misspoke. I I was actually, look, to be honest with you, as we were coming in, I was reading a text message from Ben Burgess, who is apparently staying with you, Kale. Um, Yeah, he's like 20
2: feet away from me right now.
0: So I don't know. I don't know. People people are saying that they love the Burgess. People are saying, so maybe later for the how, Super Chat section, he can join us. I don't know. I'm not saying anything. I'm just how
2: saying. Do, but how, does, how do you get from that to Kyle?
0: I was reading his text message to me and Nando <laughs> stating that he's staying with you as like we went live. Uh, and then I got flustered and said Kyle. Like it just came mm, out as Kyle. Mm, so that's... Mm. Mm. You know, that's what happens. One, one would call for... this
2: a no. One would call this a slip. We'll uh, we'll do a full <laughs> We'll do an, an analysis in the Q and A.
0: We should do a twenty minute decode on it for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, everyone, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be answering your super chat questions later in the show. Uh, we're also going to have a fantastic episode today uh, where. Nando, I I don't know what your decode segment is going to be on. What are you talking about today?
1: I'm talking about the Havana syndrome.
0: Nice. Nice. Um, Havana syndrome making another appearance on the show today because we've talked about it before, but in the context of like a salt segment where we pretty much made fun of it. Um, So I think a deeper dive is um, definitely necessary. I'll be talking about the corporate Democrats uh, in the banter segment of the show. We'll talk about how three corporate Democrats in the House uh, voted in their committees to defeat the provision in the reconciliation bill that would allow for Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. It's infuriating. And I'll give you the details in just a moment. And then later in the program, I'll also talk about how the media fails time and time again to really dive into the conflicts of interest and the financial motives that politicians have when they reject hugely popular legislation like the reconciliation bill. Um, So I'll be focusing on Joe Manchin, but make no mistake, it applies to many corporate Democrats. Um, And uh, we're going to have a wonderful interview today. Uh, We're going to have Megan Day join us and Seth Ackerman to discuss the Mm. 10-year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a great show. All right. Yeah. So why don't we get started with the um, what with what the corporate Democrats did in the House this week? It was really a story that was ignored for the most part. But I think that it gives you a sense of just how the sausage is made and how, you know, there is this very aggressive fight to strip the reconciliation bill of of incredibly important Mm -hmm. provisions. So. Three corporate Democrats in the House Energy and Commerce Committee are fighting to strip the budget reconciliation bill of a popular provision that would allow for Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. I'm sure our incredibly intelligent audience already knows that it's banned. It, Medicare cannot directly negotiate drug prices, which blows. I mean, it blows my mind every time it's back in the news. Uh, But that is the case. And it's something that pharmaceutical companies and uh, their lobbyists have fought really, really hard to um, not only make happen, but to preserve. And that's what's happening right now with these three corporate Democrats. So Representatives Kathleen Rice, Scott Peters and Kurt Schrader reportedly claimed that including Medicare drug price negotiations in the package, get this, would keep the legislation from ultimately passing despite polls showing the provision actually has widespread support. And I'll show you some receipts uh, in regard to that in just a moment. Now, this is my favorite part of the story because of how absurd it is. So Representative Rice said this. I do not support advancing policies <laughs> that are not fiscally cons- responsible and jeopardize the bill's final passage. So according to Representative Rice, and of course she's lying, allowing for Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, which would save money for the Medicare system, is not fiscally responsible, Nando. mm
1: Mm -mm. No, no. Very irresponsible to, um, you know, spend less on prescription drugs (laughs) than more. That's uh, up is down, black is white. Um, I'm sure we will see a barrage of criticism from the liberal media uh, about a supposed lack of unity uh, uh, and disloyalty from these three representatives for uh, tanking not only a very popular provision, you know, like you said, something like 90% of uh, a voter support it, uh, but but the centerpiece of both Joe Biden's uh, agenda, but also the entire Democratic caucus in the House, which ran on this over and over again uh, in 2018, if I recall correctly. So yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll see. I'm sure we'll see those takes.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how little this how little attention this got in the press, right? Um, now, let me be clear. Right now, committees are negotiating the bill, the language of the bill, the various provisions that are included in the bill. And while it was voted down as a result of these three corporate Democrats in the uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee, the House Ways and Means Committee voted in favor of the provision. The point here is that there is going to be a showdown in regard to the most relevant and critical provisions in this bill. Now, you have progressive lawmakers in the House who uh, continue to issue incredibly strong statements about how they will block the corporate desired bipartisan infrastructure bill unless they ensure they get these provisions passed, unless they ensure that they get $3.5 trillion passed in the reconciliation bill. Um, But look, the only irresponsible behavior um, is really coming from these corporate Democrats who are actually crushing their own constituents with these ridiculous stunts on behalf of their corporate donors. So Americans currently pay two to three times more than people Mm. in other wealthy countries for prescription drugs. One in four struggle to afford prescriptions, and 30% of Americans report having cut pills in half or skipping doses to save money. But, you Jesus. know, Democratic lawmaker uh, Kathleen Rice would have you believe that negotiating for lower drug prices is somehow fiscally irresponsible. Just insults 30%, our
1: intelligence. 30% of Americans are cutting pills in half. Yeah. Like, the medicine that they need. Uh, one in three Americans are doing that. Like, it's just, it's, again, I mean, I, it's it's the the... Um, the cynicism that this kind of thing breeds, right? Um, after, I mean, it's the it's the it's the double bind of American politics, right? In that it's like uh, you're stuck between these two parties, um, who neither of neither of whom give a shit about you, um, and uh, you know you, you're browbeaten to to vote for these Democrats all the time, and then when they take power. Uh, there's always something. There's always like and it's always like a one or two thing, you know, like it's always like, oh the parliamentarian, oh the, the the it's in the committee of the thing, you know, like it's these kind of like incredibly arcane um things within the institution that at this at the soonest kind of at the smallest roadblock they just throw their hands up and be like, Well, it's in the committee of the energy and the thing and we can't do the you know, we can't we can't do it. And the parliamentarian said the thing and we we can't do it. Um, And it's like, we, we get like the, the voters get all riled up and they get so emotionally invested in these election outcomes. And uh, there's so much money spent and so much energy spent and so much media coverage about them. Um, And then they go and they do the thing. They pull the lever for, for the Democrats. And then they, then they go and they do this. And it's again, there's no excuse. There's no excuses for it. Uh, this is they control the house. There's no they control it. There's it's not like the big bad Republicans um, are doing anything to block this. So um, it's it's one of those things that just breeds a an incredible amount of cynicism in in the population. It just beats people totally. down because they they want it. This is like the most popular policy it is as big of a no brainer as you could ever imagine in American policy in American politics. Um, and they're not.
0: Yeah. In fact, why don't we, we go to um, just how many Americans want this particular provision included? Let's look at uh, Kathleen Rice's district and how her constituents feel. Turns out that 90 percent of Rice's constituents support the provision, while only 18 percent believe the argument uh, long made by pharmaceutical companies that allowing uh, negotiation by Medicare will harm innovation. Similar poll results were found both in Peters's and Schrader's districts. In fact, uh, the New York Times, uh, not the New York Times, my bad, uh, the Data for Progress uh, group put together this handy map that shows you um, ju- gives you a little visual of just how popular this particular provision is. So, the darker the shade of blue, the more support that part of the country has for the provision. And as you can see, at least at least eighty eight percent of voters um, in even the more conservative parts of the country want this provision included and then you get to places like i mean look at how dark blue florida is look at how dark blue maine is look at how dark blue you know parts of texas happens to be and it's because this is a this is really a nonpartisan issue Americans in general overwhelmingly support this provision because everyone's getting completely screwed by the high, cro- high cost of pharmaceutical drugs. And so finally, what is driving or influencing these lawmakers to uh, essentially go against the desires of their own constituents? Well, Peters and Schrader have both accepted tens of thousands of dollars in donations from the pharmaceutical industry this election cycle. Pharmaceutical companies are the top contributors to Peters's campaign in the 2021 and 2022 cycle, donating more than $88,000 so far. And look, these lawmakers, corporate Democrats, corporate Republicans, they have no problem hoeing themselves for cheap. And that's, you know, $88,000. You might wonder, wow, is that all it takes um, to essentially vote against something to continue pain and suffering that literally impacts their own constituents and the answer is yes there's there's really they're bottom of the barrel people they don't care yeah
1: the the pollster like the data scientist uh, i I don't know what his title is uh, david shore the data analyst i guess who's very influential in within the democratic party circles and uh, it's not exactly like i would just i wouldn't describe him as like an idealistic guy um he uh, he said that of the policies that they've pulled in, like they've pulled like something like 184 potential policies because, like, his whole theory is like Democrats should run on uh, the most popular policies that they could possibly run on. Um, and he pulled like 100 and some 80 some policies, and this policy was consistently the most popular one, which is probably why um, the Democrats ran almost exclusively on this. Like, if you looked at ads in the 2018. Uh, midterms, this was like the issue that they kept on harping on back over and over and over again, um, because at their internal polling showed them that it was like literally the most popular policy that they could that they could possibly implement, like, no divisiveness, no potential kind of like right wing backlash from from voters, you know, it wasn't like touching guns or, or defund the police or, uh, you know, opening the floodgates to all the immigrants or something like that. This is like the kind of thing that is about a safe Uh, a win uh, as you could possibly get in American politics. And they're not going to do it.
0: No, they're not going to do it. And, you know, they bank on exactly what has happened after voting this down in their committee. They bank on the corporate media avoiding the story. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, you got to go to independent sources. You got to go to places like The Intercept to really figure out what's happening during these negotiations. In terms of corporate media, you'll get, you know, pieces published by Axios arguing that, oh, well, you know, Senator Cinema has this accountant like focus on oh the national God. debt. And it's like,
1: oh, my God,
0: F off, dude. Like, we know what we know. the what's most really embarrassing
1: That was the most embarrassing piece. That was one of the most embarrassing pieces I've ever seen in my entire life. Like these journalists, like who are these people? They're like little, they're like little children, little children. These guys dangle a little thing in front of them. They're like, oh, like Google Gaga, like a little mobile, like a little infant (laughs) playing with like a little mobile above, above their crib. They're like, oh my God, look how amazing this is. She's got the spreadsheets. She's got spreadsheets. And it's like, how can you, people believe this shit?
0: No, imagine considering yourself a journalist and literally just taking everything politicians tell you at face value and just regurgitating it, either on air or in the case of Axios, just like publishing it. It's like, oh, accountant-like focus on her spreadsheets. I I got news for you. The only spreadsheets that she might be focusing on include the uh, donors that have contributed to her campaigns and exactly how much money they've given. She's not pouring into the national debt.
1: She's got like a, no, she's got like in Clueless, uh, she's got like a share in Clueless. She's got like her outfits in a spreadsheet and she does like these kind of uh, random algorithms to like match her skirt with her blouse. Uh, and, you know, that's how she chooses her dope outfits to to do, to vote down a $15 uh, minimum wage. That's how she does it. She puts the spreadsheets in and that's what they tell her to wear.
0: That's right. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's so pathetic. And look, uh, if Democrats genuinely do care about unity, uh, something that they, you know, I mean, Biden was really the most vociferous about the need for unity. I really do think that there are some Republican voters that Democrats could court if they materially improve their lives. So There actually is unity in the electorate when it comes to policies that would improve their lives. It's just that, you know, a lot of the division that we see in the country is based on what our politicians and what our media is hyper focused on. And it's the culture war BS to deflect from the bread and butter issues that the vast majority of Americans do happen to agree on. Um, So that's where we are. All right. Well, uh, before we get to our decodes, why don't we give a shout out to our partner over at Verso?
1: Yes, if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook in the mail, including uh, one or more. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to pull it up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I had I had the Verso book read. I sort of got I had it, and then I accidentally exited out because I was my computer was eating too much memory. Okay, so if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get fifty percent off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag, tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are fifty percent off for your first three. Months. The Comrade Tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in September, you'll get these four books Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern by Stuart Jeffries, Everything and Less. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. The novel In the Age of Amazon by Mark McGurl, Revolution in an Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso, and Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones.
0: All right. Love it. Well, let's get right to our decodes. And it's a little bit of a continuation about, um, you know, what we've already discussed in our opening segment. And it's, you know, what motivates these corporate Democrats uh, to go against the best interests of their own constituents? And uh, they are aided and abetted by the corporate press. So let's get to it. President Joe Biden met one on one with conservative Senator Joe Manchin in an effort to persuade the senator to support the three point five trillion dollar reconciliation bill. The very bill that, unfortunately, Senator Manchin has uh, been vociferously against uh, because of a host of ridiculous, hollow talking points, including that it's too expensive or that we need more bipartisanship. Now, unfortunately, even though uh, Mansion had already publicly rejected the bill, you know, Biden thought maybe I can threaten Mansion with the bill that he actually does want passed, the bipartisan infrastructure bill which includes privatizing infrastructure, something that Mansion's donors want, and it also includes corporate handouts. Now, Axios has just reported that Biden bombs with Manchin, meaning that this one-on-one talk, unfortunately, was not persuasive enough. The article goes on to claim that Axios was told Biden explained to Manchin his opposition could imperil the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that's already passed in the Senate. Biden's analysis, though, did little to persuade Manchin to raise his top line. So what is his top line? I mean, that was something that has been in question. And it appears that Manchin is unwilling to spend anything above one to one point five trillion dollars, meaning that the three point five trillion dollar bipartisan, the three point five trillion dollar reconciliation package is just far too expensive. We can't spend that kind of money. It's unacceptable. That's what we keep hearing from Manchin. And, you know, it it's frustrating because he's full of it. And I'll explain why in a second. But let me also just give you a side note in regard to the Axios piece in question here, because it doesn't help that the article was written by Hans Nichols, who just the other day published a laughable ar- ar- article arguing that Cinema's uh, representative, I'm sorry, Senator Senator Kirsten Cinema's rejection of that same bill had to do with the fact that you know she's just really responsible about the deficit and the debt. Uh, he wrote that while Senator Joe Manchin is getting attention for balking at a $3.5 trillion top line price tag, cinemas, he wrote this, accountant like focus on the bottom line will be equally important to winning the votes of them and other key Democrats. Now, Biden also had a one on one meeting with cinema. It's unclear whether he was uh, more successful in persuading cinema. But it is a little concerning that Manchin seemed a little unfazed uh, about the progressive lawmakers threatening to block the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, It seemed like that was the area where progressives have some leverage. And to be clear, they should still use that leverage and call Manchin's bluff because I guarantee you his donors absolutely do want the passage of that bipartisan bill. Now, um, in reality, if anyone's paying close attention, it's clear that Manchin is captured. By corporate donors, of course. And this is important his personal investments, which means he has serious conflicts of interest that typically go unreported in the mainstream press. Lawmakers like Manchin spew hollow talking points about the need for bipartisanship or how he's worried about the deficit as they announce their objections to legislation that would materially improve the lives of their own constituents. The media just accepts their talking points at face value. That's obviously not journalism, and it's certainly not helpful to the American people who deserve to know what really motivates these lawmakers. It took an accurate tweet from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to get CNN's Dana Bash to finally ask Manchin the right questions. Earlier this week, Ocasio-Cortez responded to the West Virginia senator stating that he won't support the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill because he's allegedly concerned about the price tag, or because he's uh, captured by the corporate interests, not because he's actually worried about the price tag. Let's watch.
3: I'm sure you've heard uh, your fellow Democrat, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez,
0: said this about you in a tweet. Manchin has weekly huddles with Exxon and is one of many senators who gives lobbyists their pen to write so-called bipartisan fossil fuels bills. It's killing people. Sick of this bipartisan corruption that masquerades as clear-eyed moderation. This is your it. fellow Democrat. Well, well, is it true that you have weekly meetings with Exxon not. and other
4: absolutely lobbyists not. You for fossil fuel? Ever. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. Weekly meetings? I don't. It's just false. I, I keep my door open for everybody. It's totally false. And those type of superlatives—it's just awful. Continue to divide, divide, divide. I don't know the young lady that well. I really don't. I've met her one time, I think, between sets here, but that's it. So we have not had any conversations. She's just speculating and saying things because she wants to. She's situation.
5: not the only one. I'm sure you've heard. There are a
0: number of your fellow Democrats who say that you're opposed to this because you're bought and paid for by I'm
4: corporate to it donors. it it makes no sense at all.
0: Got to be honest, I love watching Joe Manchin squirm. And before we disprove him, before we uh, call out his lies it's important to look into uh, why he rejects the budget reconciliation bill in the first place, what he has cited as problematic. He is not in any way in favor of the climate action provisions uh, that certainly don't go far enough in responding to the climate emergency, but do happen to be the most robust way the United States has proposed to uh, mitigate climate change. Now, There are also provisions uh, that would help American families, provisions that include, for instance, free two year community college, uh, an expansion of Medicare to include dental, vision, you know, Things that should already be included as part of healthcare, to be quite honest with you. It would also lower the age of Medicare. It would allow for Medicare to negotiate for, for drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies, uh, essentially lowering drug prices and saving money, not just for the federal government, for the, but for the American people. Um, it also includes childcare. It includes all sorts of provisions that would make Americans whole or at least as close to whole as possible in this hyper-capitalist system. Let's keep it real. Uh, And so Manchin knows that it's wildly popular with his own constituents, uh, but he keeps claiming over and over again that his problem is, well, I'm worried about jobs. I mean, the climate... Action could lead to job losses in West Virginia. He claims he's worried about the national debt, uh, but the bill would also offer uh, the provisions to help struggling American families, which goons over at Fox News seems seem to think wouldn't even appeal to Americans. Now, look, just to give you a sense of how popular these provisions are, Stuart Varney over at Fox Business did a segment to talk about what the provisions included, and he got a lot of backlash. Because it turns out that his own audience members think that these provisions sound really, really good. Let's watch.
4: If Bernie Sanders gets his way, America will look, feel and perform just
1: like Europe. He and his fellow leftists want to spend five trillion dollars to put the federal government in charge of your life, literally from cradle to grave. In Bernie's world, let me outline your life before and after birth.
4: Parents get paid family leave. Up to age three, the government helps with daycare. After age three, youngsters get free pre-K. Parents get cash for their kids all
1: the way through age 18. Cash for kids. After high school, two years of free community college. And you, the parents, get expanded Medicare with dental, vision, and hearing paid for.
0: Now, to be fair, Stuart Barney actually did a better job explaining the provisions in the bill than I've seen in other uh, cable news shows, which is fascinating because, again, Varney was under the assumption that his audience would hate the reconciliation bill. But upward of 70% of American voters, and that includes Republicans, support. The provisions in the budget reconciliation bill. So it's understandable why Varney would get uh, backlash from his own audience members. Now, going back to Manchin and his response to Representative Ocasio Cortez and how he claims that he does not meet with executives or lobbyists from Exxon, um, it's really hard to buy that argument when earlier this year, a senior Exxon lobbyist by the name of Keith McCoy was tricked by activists posing as job recruiters. Uh, during this uh, secretly recorded meeting, uh, he thought, of course, he was being interviewed for a potential job, but he ended up admitting on camera that he does, in fact, meet with Manchin in his office or at his office every week. Let's watch.
4: Senators pressed to do Exxon's bidding behind closed doors.
5: Do you want to be able to go to the, the chief. And so the chief knows you, that you can go to the chief and say, look, we've got this issue. Uh, We need congressman so-and-so to be able to to introduce this bill. We need him to make a floor statement. We need him to
4: send a letter. You name it, we've asked for everything. So who are the fish? I'm Joe Manchin. I approve this act. The biggest catch, according to Mr. Coy, it's the conservative Democrat Senator Joe Manchin who famously shot President Obama's cap-and-trade climate bill. And I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill.
5: Joe Manchin, I talk Mm -hmm. to his office every week. Um, He is the kingmaker, uh, and and he's not shy about sort of staking his claim early and completely changing the debate.
0: Oh, he's the kingmaker. meets with uh, Joe Manchin's office every week, but apparently Joe Manchin... Uh, is clueless about that. I don't know. Is he like sedated when that meeting happens? And, uh, you know, there's also quite a bit of reporting um, from sources like Open Secrets uh, that indicate that Manchin has taken quite a bit of funding from ExxonMobil, which, of course, has no interest in passing the budget reconciliation bill, knowing that the climate provisions would hurt their bottom line. So, analysis of campaign disclosures found the six Democratic senators Mark Kelly, Maggie Hassan, Joe Manchin, Chris Coons, Kirsten Sinema, and John Tester received a combined total of nearly $333,000 from lobbyists, political action committees, and lobbying firms affiliated with Exxon over the past decade. And look, despite the overwhelming evidence that Manchin is beholden to his corporate donors that he's basically captured by them. In interview after interview, if he's ever asked about it, he pretends like he's completely clueless. I bring you this exchange between Jake Ugar and Joe Manchin back in 2017. I thought it was a great interview, but get a load of how Manchin responded to the accusations of legalized bribery.
4: So you voted to repeal the stream protection rule, and your top donor is First Energy that wound up getting in some degree of trouble for putting arsenic in a pond. It seems like they would benefit from the repeal of that regulation. So did that have anything to do with your vote? No. Jenks, I know it's hard to believe, and I know it's hard for people to, I don't have any idea who gives me money. I don't solicit from the standpoint you do this for me, quid pro quo. That's never been me. That's not my political mantra at all. This is the list of your top donors. I, I, I thought you said that you don't, I, I understand that you said you don't do quid pro quo. That, that was clear. Yeah. But you know who your top donors are, right? I do not. You don't know who your top donors are. I do not. You're showing me something I've never seen. Okay, so this is from Open Secrets. Yeah, I, I know you have, Jenks, I know that it's hard for anyone to, to believe. I do
5: not.
0: Yeah, notice there are quite a few energy companies uh, listed as his top donors. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to believe that Manchin um, has no idea about his corporate donors is due to reporting by The Intercept earlier this year when reporters like Ryan Grimm and Lee Fong obtained audio of Manchin's meeting with the billionaire donors behind the group known as No Labels. At the time, members of his own party were fighting to end the Senate filibuster, which requires 67 senators to vote in favor of legislation in order for anything to pass. Now, that's the reason why legislation typically goes to the Senate to die. But Manchin kept fighting over and over again to maintain the filibuster. And his main argument was, we need to maintain it because bipartisanship is important. We need to reach across the aisle. We need to show that we can unite the country. Now, with, uh, The stimulus bill or the coronavirus relief bill that was passed during the Biden administration, that really showed that the GOP had no interest in working together. They had no interest in bipartisanship. In fact, Manchin said we need to maintain the filibuster and just negotiate with the GOP. He did a bunch of concessions on behalf of the GOP, including uh, additional means testing for the relief. He also was able to cut down the unemployment insurance from $400 a week to $300 a week in the middle of a pandemic. And the whole idea was we don't have to get rid of the filibuster. We can pass this in a bipartisan way. Everything's going to be great, except they weren't able to pass it in a bipartisan way. Um, Not a single GOP lawmaker voted in favor of it. Now, when he was meeting with those billionaire donors from no labels, he realized "Mm, my talking point on bipartisanship is not going so well. So I need your help. Manchin told the assembled donors that he needed help flipping a handful of Republicans from no to yes on the January 6th commission in order to strip the far left of their best argument against the filibuster. The senator even suggested enticing his right-wing colleague, Roy Blunt, who's retiring, with a job offer after he leaves public office, telling the big money donors, quote, Roy is retiring. If some of you all who might be working with Roy in his next life could tell him, that'd be nice and it would help our country, That would be a very that would be very good to get him to change his vote. And we're going to have another vote on this thing, meaning the January 6th commission. That'll give me one more shot at it. So understand that he wasn't trying to entice Republican lawmakers to vote in favor of economic policy that would improve people's lives. He was specifically trying to get these billionaire donors to offer Roy Blunt a job as soon as he's out of public office in return for a yes vote on the January 6th commission, just to give the American people the illusion of bipartisanship in the Senate. Now, the reconciliation bill uh, would raise taxes on the wealthy and corporations, which is a major reason why his corporate donors are against it. But the media tends to leave out that fact from their coverage. And they also tend to leave out the fact that Manchin himself is a business owner. He is a millionaire in his own right, um, And he's worried about his own profit motives. Manchin himself is a millionaire who would end up paying more in taxes if the reconciliation bill would pass with tax increases on those making $400,000 or more per year. Also, while Manchin claims to be concerned about jobs in the fossil fuel industry, it's more likely he's really just looking to maximize his personal returns on his investments. So uh, I take you to Robert Reich, who writes that Joe Manchin founded two coal companies in the 1980s, which are now led by his son. His family's fortune relies on allowing the fossil fuel industry to keep wreaking havoc on our planet. Also, this is super relevant, Manchin's most recent financial disclosure shows that he has made nearly half a million dollars a year or last year due to his personal investment in the coal industry. According to his most recent financial disclosure, Manchin gained $492,000 last year due to his non-public shares in a coal company called Ener Systems, which records, or which records show is a contractor for a power plant in the state's north that burns waste coal. Meanwhile, Manchin's 2020 income for being a senator was $174,000. That's relevant because it shows that his investments in coal more bring him money that's more than double his salary uh, for being a senator. So uh, then there are other conflicts of interest that are worth mentioning. For instance, Manchin objected to increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, arguing that $11 an hour is just far more reasonable. What was left out of the corporate media coverage of that debate was the fact that Manchin is a stakeholder in a company that owns a hotel in West Virginia, which would be forced to pay its workers a higher wage, thus cutting into their profits. As TYT Investigates reported back in March, Uh, Double A Property is reportedly 50% controlled by Mansion and is an investor in Emerald Coast Realty, which owns a La Quinta Hotel in Elkview, West Virginia the national average salary for several La Quinta positions is well below $15 an hour. If Manchin's $11 an hour proposal were to win out, which it didn't, there was no increase in the federal uh, minimum wage, La Quinta hotel housekeepers, for instance, would get an average wage of 8 cents an hour nationwide. Uh, but, uh, it would have far more of an impact on the workers, uh, in West Virginia where they're paid far less. Now, again, uh, paying those workers would cut into the return on mansions' investment. That is a huge issue. How do we allow lawmakers to have these personal business investments when they're supposed to be passing policies based on the best interests of their constituents, not based on the best interests of their pocketbooks? Instead of emphasizing this clear conflict of interest or even mentioning it at all, the media continued to bolster Manchin's claim that Democrats need to tone down their demands in order to appeal to GOP lawmakers. But not a single Republican lawmaker in the Senate or the House, as I mentioned earlier, voted in favor of the COVID relief bill. Uh, All they've been interested in is stripping down proposed legislation coming from the Biden administration. And by the way, the media also ignored Manchin assuring the powerful lobbying group known as the National Restaurant Association that he was committed, committed to blocking the wage increase.
4: We've been having meetings on minimum wage. And I can't for the life of me don't understand why they don't take a win on $11. But Bernie Sanders is totally committed. And his heart and soul, the 15 is the way to go. Well, it might be the way to go, Bernie, but I ain't going to go. You don't have the votes for it. It's not going to happen. So they're going to walk away with their pride saying we fought for 15 and got nothing. And I said, we could start down the path, $11, take care of tip wage, because that's very important in your industry that we're talking about to make sure that it won't get that out of kilter and mess up the whole industry. So I can tell you there's more than just me as a Democrat that believes that uh, the path they're going down is wrong. But if it comes down to one person, I don't believe it should be above 11. I don't think tip wage should ever go above half of that. Uh, From your lips to God's ears.
0: Yeah, that was pretty disgusting. And honestly, that's just another one of his hollow talking points, that raising the federal minimum wage would actually hurt workers because businesses would have no choice but to shut down or to cut jobs. But let's really take a look at how much Joe Manchin is concerned about job losses, even in his own state of West Virginia. It's especially rich considering Manchin's unwillingness to step in as more than 1,400 workers, unionized workers in West Virginia lost their jobs over the closure of the Viatris pharmaceutical plant in Morgantown. The jobs were offshore to India and Australia, which sounds like a really great idea, just as we're experiencing how fragile our supply chains are in the middle of a pandemic. Now, as Democracy Now! reported back in July of this year, Biatris was formed through a merger between two pharmaceutical companies, Mylan and Upjohn. Mylan's chief executive, Manchin's daughter, Heather Bresh, got a $31 million payout as a result of the corporate consolidation before the new company set about cutting costs, including the closure of the Morgantown plant. The fact that Manchin's daughter received a massive golden parachute over the merger likely played a role in the senator's unwillingness to do a damn thing to prevent the loss of thousands of unionized jobs in his own state. So the president of the United Steelworkers of America, Local uh, 8975, and a worker at the plant says that Beatrice has given little reason for the closure except to say that the company is looking to maximize the best interests of the shareholders. Because, of course, understandably, it was unsurprising when the union represent uh, representing the workers at the time reached out to Joe Manchin, reached out to his office and all they got was the cold shoulder. The union president stated that Joe Manchin gave the union members two minutes of his time several months ago and has not done anything meaningful on their behalf. In fact, Manchin's apathy toward these workers was pretty brazen.
4: The majority of penicillin and such is made outside of the domestic United States of America. But Joe Manchin's first question to us was, and I was on the call with four other officers at the Union Hall at the same time, are you all still making penicillin at the facility? We haven't made penicillin in Morgantown, West Virginia, for more than 20 years.
0: So all of this context, all of these conflicts of interest, it goes beyond legalized bribery and corruption. It has to do with the personal, material interests of our lawmakers. Those are the things that fuel their decisions, the way they govern, the way they legislate, and what type of legislation they're willing to even propose as they allegedly represent the very people who elected them into office in the first place. The fact that our lawmakers are able to be invested in individual stocks is already a massive conflict of interest that never gets addressed. And during the pandemic, it became very clear that members of Congress are trading off of insider information that they receive during undisclosed briefings about things like the pandemic, for instance. So we are supposed to live in a democracy where we vote for lawmakers who campaign on things that we care about, things that would improve our lives. But one of the main reasons why they don't actually carry out our interests is because of their own material interests that get completely ignored in the press. They need to be banned from being able to invest in public, I'm sorry, in individual stocks. They should not be able to have a little side hustle or side business that would clearly serve as a conflict of interest. And I just want to remind you all that during the Trump administration, rightfully, There was a lot of coverage about his conflicts of interest, about his violations of the emoluments clause of our Constitution, because he's a businessman and that could really be harmful if we have a president who's looking out for his own business as opposed to the best interests of the American people. But when it comes to congressional lawmakers who engage in similar behavior, all we get from corporate media is stenography essentially claims uh that they they're worried about bipartisanship, they're worried about uniting the country, they're worried about the debt or the deficit. Are they really issues that they're concerned about? And why is it that we have journalists that are just regurgitating what lawmakers are saying them, saying to them instead of questioning what their real interests are? So, you know, democracy is undermined both by the legalized bribery, but more importantly by the fact that you have lawmakers looking out for their bottom line, and it's something that needs to be acknowledged and something that needs to be legislated against. Nando.
1: I often think of the media as their main role to obfuscate real power and how power is exercised in this country. Um This is especially true of the liberal media, uh, which, you know, elevates everything to, like you said, like these kind of lofty concerns over bipartisanship or, or whatever, you know, uh, fiscal responsibility or whatever, like as if anyone actually believes in any of that stuff. It's it, 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 and the thing is like, they may believe it on some level, like, but it, it is because of a foundation of power relations. Um, you know, as Mark said, it's the base and the superstructure, you know, not to get all, you know, not to get all Kale Brooks on, on, on you, but, uh, the, uh, it's, it's, and, and what the media does is ignore the base like, or, or purposefully obfuscate the base, um, and only talk about the, the, the sort of, uh, the sort of high high level ideas or whatever. Um, I mean, this is why uh, a lot of people like a lot of people on the left enjoy reading the financial times because the financial times is often, you know, in the context of the mainstream press um, doesn't, doesn't engage in that, you know, they do engage in actual kind of power relations. Um, they just thought they just are on the other team. Um, but, uh, but it, it is clarifying to read it because you can, you can see how, how power actually works. Whereas, Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just, it's so frustrating to see it, because, um, again, it doesn't matter. And and the thing is, it doesn't matter what's inside someone's heart, you know, like, it really doesn't. Exactly. Uh, And you can go crazy trying to figure it out. I mean, I mean, it, it is a fun kind of like, debate to be had on a Friday night when you're amongst your friends, and you've had a few drinks, and you're just like, So these Democrats, do you think that they're just like stupid or do you think they're liars or do you think they're, and it's like, there's a combination of both and, you know, and you'll never really know. I think they're rational
0: actors. I think they're rational actors. And I think that they do what's best for them as long as the system allows for it and the system allows for it. Right? Like they might be called public servants, but they're not really interested in serving the public. And it's not about them being good guys or bad guys. It's about material interests. Right? Like. This like the media's tendency to treat congressional lawmakers as if like, you know, they're above all of that, like, you know, that they're not in any way greedy or looking, you know, looking out for their own you know, financial uh, interests is ridiculous. Uh, they're rational actors at the end of the day. And you're right. Like the power structure is what needs to be focused on. And and what the real incentives are, and I just think yeah. that gets completely ignored, yeah, in the mainstream conversation.
1: And just the 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 level of corruption is just so it's so disgusting. It's so disgusting. Like the the American state is just is just like so corrupt. Um, totally. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, it, again, I, I, you know, it's like corruption happens almost everywhere, and you know, there's there's limits to to like anti-corruption politics and all that stuff, but but the, the the american state is just so utterly corrupt it's just it's crazy like if you just stop and look at it for five seconds you're like this is so disgusting i mean and the thing is like it's yeah. funny because americans have this view of history that is kind of like if it happened in the past like if it happened more than like 15 years ago it's like it's like it, it's in the past like it's way in the past so like Everyone kind of understands very well that that cities like New York City in the turn of the century with uh, uh, the Tammany Hall machine and, you know, and that Chicago local politics was like dominated by the mafia. And like they understand like that in history, but like they don't see the current, you know, the current thing as kind of a version of that or like maybe a, a slightly more polite yeah. version of that. But it's really the same, the same thing.
0: Well, I mean, the Supreme Court carried out exactly what uh, corporate interests wanted it to carry out. I think the reason why uh, the corruption is seen differently now is because it's g- given this, like, facade of, you know, I guess the credibility of, like, legality, right? Like, yeah. it's like, oh, but it's, you know, Supreme Court said this is okay. This is just political speech. It's totally fine. Totally fine.
1: The other thing that drives me crazy <laughs> is that it's it becomes just like another part of like the horse race uh, analysis of, of politics that, you know, places like political do. It's like, who's winning the money race? <laughs> you know, like um, like on. in any election, yeah. it's like it's just another data point in to, to judge who wins the horse race, not as like some... It's not like, wait, this is disgusting. Like the fact that this is like, it's, it just becomes like another, just like, Oh, you know, like this person's up a few million dollars and the other one has a lot to catch up, catching yeah. up to do. They might have to, you know, and it's it, that, that, that whole thing is just, is just disgusting as well. It's
0: like, it's like them announcing, I, I don't know, like some athletes stats as if it's a good thing, right? Like yeah. the person who raises the most money is the person who's winning. So, you know, there's that extra layer of, um, doing positive pr for the legalized bribery that happens in this country so you're absolutely right about that well uh let's move it over to some foreign policy on a topic that i don't know i mean i've been amused by it uh i think it's ridiculous and i can't wait to hear what you have to say about this uh you know mysterious havana syndrome
1: well it's another bit of kind of i guess in a way media criticism too because if if you've been following the news in the last few years, you may have seen this strange little story pop up every once in a while. And yes, I'm talking about the case of the so-called Havana syndrome, in which American diplomats in Cuba and other places complained that they were being attacked by mysterious brain-melting microwaves.
0: New details on a series of bizarre attacks, dozens of unexplained illnesses, including head injuries, forced the U.S. to bring home diplomatic staff From China and the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Cuba. Speculation at the time was that it was some sort of sonic attack. But now the scientist who led the investigation tells The New York Times
5: the main culprit is likely some kind of microwave weapon.
1: It's a microwave weapon. Now, this story broke conspicuously shortly after the Obama administration ended decades of hostility towards Cuba and began a process of normalizing relations. The alleged Cuban attacks on U.S. diplomats were used as a key reason for the Trump administration to reverse that policy. The U.S. government has now been investigating the Havana syndrome for years, and the media has breathlessly reported it every step of the way, often using words like James Bond spy thriller to describe it. Now, this was in both the New Yorker story and in the 60 Minutes piece about it. They described it as a James Bond-like story. Now, I'm not a journalism professor like uh, Anna Kasparian is, but if I were, one of my lessons would be if the story seems like it's something out of a James Bond movie, it's probably bullshit. But I digress. This week, the Biden administration quietly admitted that it is no longer calling the phenomenon the Havana Syndrome. This is from a Newsweek report. Havana's syndrome is the term widely used in the United States to describe symptoms reportedly suffered by staff at Washington's embassies in Cuba and other countries across the globe. But the Biden administration has quietly renamed the malady to cut the reference to the capital city in which it was first observed. We refer to these incidents as unexplained health incidents or UHIs, a State Department spokesperson told Newsweek. Isn't that conspicuous? Well, of course, this barely got a notice in the U.S. media, but one person who did notice it was Dr. José Ramón Cabañas Rodríguez, who was the former Cuban ambassador to the United States. He tweeted out, some interesting developments. Havana syndrome becomes UHI as U.S. backs down on blaming Cuba. Now, this whole business of the mysterious radio wave attacks on U.S. diplomats is almost too perfect a case study in how awful the media is when it comes to matters of national security. Every step of the way, the mainstream press has credulously presented the most inflammatory explanations for the phenomenon while ignoring any dissenting opinions or facts that may muddle the narrative. For example, last year, the National Academy of Sciences uh, published its report commissioned by the State Department on what happened. Last weekend, the National Academies of Sciences released the first authoritative government report concluding the victims were most likely hit by directed pulsed radio frequency energy. The lead author was Stanford microbiology and immunology professor David Relman.
2: That form of microwave radiation is really not terribly common in the world around us. It's sometimes used, for example, um, in radar systems. It sometimes is used uh, in clinical medicine for treatment of certain ailments, but it's not common in the home around us or in the, in the world that we normally frequent. And that's what makes it a little bit unusual and the you know, sort of the message behind it a little bit different. The message,
1: someone may have pointed
2: a non-lethal weapon at
1: US government employees in order to harm them. And some former intelligence officials tell me that the perpetrator was likely Russia. Now this led to a wave of coverage. That guy was all over the place. Stanford professor of medicine, David Roman chaired the study.
2: We have neurologists on our committee that said afterwards in my entire career of reading about countless hundreds and thousands of cases of neurologic injury, I've never heard of something like this.
5: This is really unique in the medical literature.
2: It is.
1: Politicians even started passing laws based on this and, quote, looking to hold someone accountable.
3: New Hampshire Senator Gene Shaheen has been fighting to get the victims medical assistance and answers about who did this. If we don't
0: hold those responsible accountable, then we can be sure it's going to continue to happen. And that's a national security risk to the United States and to our personnel.
1: Now, the next step of this. Usually is. The intelligence agencies started leaking their own classified internal reports, this time about big bad Russia.
3: According to U.S. intelligence documents obtained by CNN, Russia has been developing this microwave attack capability for decades. Today, Bill Burns, President Biden's nominee to lead the CIA, telling Congress.
4: I will have no higher priority than taking care of people, of colleagues and their families. I will make it an extraordinarily high priority um, to
1: get to the bottom of who's responsible for the attacks. No higher priority at the CIA. What didn't get nearly as much coverage were the scientists who read the report and were highly skeptical of its findings. This is from BuzzFeed News. They write, however, experts in both microwaves and group psychology were highly critical of the report's conclusions. Quote, the report does not make a coherent argument why microwaves should be involved, said University of Pennsylvania bioengineer Kenneth Foster, who first described the mechanism behind the Frey effect in 1974. The effect requires very high power levels to produce barely audible sounds, he said, and it's not known to cause injuries. Maybe someone went to the trouble uh, to truck in a large microwave transmitter to cause the employees to hear clicks, but there are simpler ways to harass people than that, he said. Another one said, quote, this is not science, but science fiction, said UCLA neurologist Robert Ballow, co-author of Havana Syndrome, Mass Psychogenic Illness, and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria. News reports alone, not considered by the panel, paint a picture of illnesses spreading through the patients in ways that look a lot like past group psychology outbreaks, Ballow said. There's a lot of misunderstandings, misunderstanding these symptoms are real, people are really injured, even among physicians, he added. Now, this exact pattern uh, is the same thing that we saw three years ago when the University of Pennsylvania published the first report on the Vanna Syndrome in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. That report was the key basis for all of the media coverage on these supposed attacks. Again, dissenting voices were largely ignored, versus voices like that of Robert Bartholomew. This is from The Guardian. Robert Bartholomew, an expert in mass psychogenic illness who teaches at Botany Downs Secondary College in Auckland, said he was, quote, floored by the study and claims that it reads like U.S. government propaganda. In the article, the doctors state that their objective is to describe neurological manifestations that followed exposure to an unknown energy source. But Bartholomew points out that there is no proof that any kind of energy source affected the diplomats or even that an attack took place. It's like the authors are trying to get us to believe an attack has occurred he told The Guardian. Now, Natalie Shore, who often writes about health policy for Jacobin and other places, pointed out just how flawed that original JAMA study was. She tweeted, The JAMA studies on the so-called Havana syndrome are perhaps the strongest piece of evidence wielded to make the case for both brain damage and attacks, but there were unusually significant problems with each, which are ignored in the new round of reporting. For one thing, symptoms included things like headaches, dizziness, and brain fog, all very common abnormalities reported in JAMA, used arbitrarily low threshold for abnormal, could have been caused by stress, anxiety, depression, etc., and didn't compare against appropriate control group. Concerningly, researchers dismissed psychogenic causes of illness with arguments that misunderstand what that even means. It doesn't mean patients are faking it. Their symptoms are suf- and suffering are real. It's their attribution to mysterious hostile attacks that's in doubt. Okay, so now at this point, Natalie Shore began wondering, how did this paper even get past peer review? And the answer is, it almost didn't. UCLA neurologist Bob Ballow peer-reviewed it and recommended rejection. And she points experts in, in Bob Ballow's books in the case which she, in which he recommended that they don't publish that report. Instead, JAMA moved forward with publication, motivated perhaps by a splashy politicized scoop, but hedged their bets by running it alongside a highly skeptical editorial that's been largely ignored. Now, that highly skeptical editorial that ran alongside the JAMA report was largely ignored by the media and everyone else, really. A fact that was pointed out by Mitchell Valdez Sosa, the director of the Cuban Center for Neurosciences. He wrote, this is from The Guardian, an editorial, this is quoting him, an editorial published uh, alongside of the JAMA study, which also uh, also urges caution and calls for more evidence to be rigorously evaluated before people reach definitive conclusions. But Valdez Sosa points out that while the study is referenced on the U.S. State Department's website, which calls on people to reconsider travel to Cuba in light of health attacks, the editorial, which raises a long list of caveats, is not. This has been politicized, Valdez Sosa said. I think people are using this to push for the rolling back of the relationships that had started to blossom during Obama's presidency. In fact, after the study was published, a group of 15 scientists published a joint letter criticizing the findings. Again, as neuroscientists and physicists, and this is from their letter. As neuroscientists and physicists, we have no reason to dispute that U.S. diplomats living in Cuba heard loud noises or that they reported feeling ill afterwards. Some U.S. politicians have seized on these reports to construct conspiracy theories in which they imagine a mysterious disease causing sound ray gun, something that isn't possible with with today's technology. These same politicians have used their positions of authority to present their speculations to a credulous public as though they are fact. The pronouncements, in turn, have led to international confrontation and hysteria, resulting in the removal and expulsion of diplomats and travel advisories. A preliminary communication from the University of Pennsylvania Pennsylvania with U.S. government support, published in the prestigious Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, has been used to buttress this putative acoustic attack idea with science. In fact... That work is deeply flawed and does nothing to support the attack theory. Even the FBI looked into the matter and found no evidence of attack. This is from an AP report. Following months of investigation and four FBI trips to Havana, an interim report from the Bureau's Operational Technology Division says the probe has uncovered no evidence that sound waves could have emerged, could have damaged the Americans' health, the AP has learned, the FBI report, which hasn't been released publicly, is the clearest sign to date of the U.S. ruling out the sonic weapon theory. The report says the FBI tested the hypothesis that air pressure waves via audible sound, infrasound or ultrasound could be used to clandestinely hurt Americans in Cuba and found no evidence. Again, this inconvenient bit of the narrative was uh, in- inconvenient bit of information was largely left out of the narrative. Obama's thawing of relations with Cuba was one of his few genuinely good accomplishments. Sadly, it was rapidly undone by President Trump, and there is little indication that President Biden has any interest in re-implementing the policy that his former boss had towards Cuba. This business with the Havana syndrome makes it almost impossible for Cuban diplomats to deal with American diplomats in a serious and productive way. I mean, what are they supposed to think when the Americans are accusing them of doing Dr. Evil-esque crimes? The idea that Cubans or Russians or whomever would have secret weapons technology that the U.S. doesn't know about or indeed technology that the U.S. itself doesn't already possess is utterly laughable. It's the kind of thing that falls apart when you think about it for just a few seconds. Yet that assumption has dominated U.S. diplomatic circles for years, aided and abetted by a credulous media. We must, as ever, remain skeptical of any story like this, stories that foment suspicions about America's official enemies, be they Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea, or Cuba. The reporting standards at news organizations drop dramatically when the accusation is leveled at one of those countries. Think about that whenever they try to tell you about fake news.
0: Yep. I mean, what what more is there to add to it? I mean, as the timing is also so specific, right? Right after Obama um, approaches Cuba with, diplomatic intentions, then we start hearing about the microwaves. (laughs) Like we start hearing about this attack and the inability to really explain specifically what it was, right? Like this invisible weapon that's like targeted toward US diplomats. Like it just seemed fishy from the get go, which is why I feel like it kept re-emerging in the news. Like almost like testing Americans, like, are they ready for this now? Like, can we scare them with this now? And it's like, ah, it's not working. It'll fade into the background, then it'll come up again. Um, but it is just amazing how these manufactured threats regarding our uh, you know, foes come up over and over again. Like the, I think the more ridiculous example during the tail end of the Trump administration was You know, that Russia was paying the Taliban um, bounties for U.S. soldiers. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what is your evidence for that? And they relied on one unnamed source and later had to retract that story. So uh, you're right. You got to be super skeptical because, look, especially right now where you need global cooperation to combat the real national security threat, according to the Pentagon, by the way, which is climate change. Like, how are you going to work with Russia or China or, you know, whoever the boogeyman is um, in any given administration, unless you are willing to put whatever interests or differences aside and focus on the real threat that we're already, by the way, suffering the consequences of. So, yeah, the uh, some people got mad at me because when we talked about the Havana syndrome on TYT, like, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, we were just kind of making fun of it because it. (sighs) Like the symptoms just sounded like jet lag. (laughs) You know what I mean? Stress. (laughs) Stress, jet lag. I'm like, I don't know. I I could feel that way. The stress of like being
1: the tip of the spear of the American empire and doing (laughs) awful shit around the world. (laughs) Like that that would stress me out. Oh my (laughs) God. You know, like, I mean, if if we had more time and if I had more time to prepare, which I admit, I, I did not have as much time as I would have liked to. I would have included a lot of stuff. But the the the. The main kind of public whistleblower, for lack of a better term, uh, or the main public voice is this guy who is a CIA agent based in Russia. And he's like all over the media uh, doing interviews uh, about like his suffering uh, at the hands of these dastardly Russians who are, you know, microwaving his brain. Um, and it's just like the gall of, of all the reporting around. It. It's like, well, he was in there doing intelligence operations in Russia. and like. Oh, yeah, he was, they, they have no right to, you know, like to. He's a CIA agent. Like they say, like they did have. Like it just seems utterly appropriate for, uh, you know, a state to protect itself against, uh, you know, foreign intelligence agents who are there doing all kinds of like, you know, destabilizing shit in their own country. Like that aspect of it was really funny. Um, yeah. but like you know, uh, Natalie took 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 a lot of this research very seriously when she looked into it and it seems very pretty clear that this is, that the symptoms are, 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 that there is something going on that it's not just all they're all It's not, they're all not just making it up that there's enough kind of medical evidence that there is some sort of thing. But what seems pretty clear is that this, it's one of these kind of um, psycho uh, social, like social diseases in which like um, you kind of, you're in an environment and it's, it's a bit like mass hysteria that like you're in an environment, you're in a sort of social world and people start to feel sick, and that spreads not by some sort of virus, but it's like a sort of psychological uh, mm. uh, effect that happens, a little bit like a version of like what a placebo, if like you know that a placebo totally. back can make you feel better, um, and it's like all in your head. It doesn't mean that they're lying about them themselves, like they're feeling bad, but it's it's just it doesn't necessarily mean that there's like this. Uh, yeah that there's like this bond villain uh in there with like this super technology that the u.s doesn't have that the u.s doesn't possess right. which right. is just utter, like the fact that they think that the cubans have something that they, like the oh, cubans it's so
0: good i know the fucking i cubans. know i know i mean it is pretty incredible because on one hand you know there's the oh you know look at look at how awful cuba is they've got nothing they're you know they can't they they're can't poor. do right by their own people. They're poor. And then on the other hand, they're yeah. like, they have this like super sophisticated biological weaponry that like, it's invisible. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. Um,
1: <laughs> and like anyway, highly targeted, yeah. like, like the degree of, you know, like that they're not like just zapping an entire hotel or something like They can get to like a specific person within the thing. Like, it's just so insane. It's so yeah. insane. Um, but the, the media coverage is really breathtaking. Like you could do an entire book just on the media coverage of this one story i mean it's it's there's so many there's like too many examples to to put into the piece because it's just it's crazy
0: yeah, I remember one of the first episodes of the show that we did together. We talked about Havana Syndrome, and you brought up. I wish I could remember the name of the writer, and I think it was in the Atlantic. Remember, like the coverage of it was just so laughable. Um, and yeah. again, like no real. Oh no, it was
1: uh, it was Julia Yaffe in in That's GQ. That's right.
0: That's right. Yes, I remember that. That story like, our first is together.
1: spectacular.
0: It really is.
1: That is spectacular. <laughs>
0: Well, um, we encourage you guys to go back into the archives and check out our conversation on that very article um, from months and months ago. But uh, it was a good time. Uh, Lots of poking fun at it, uh, which I enjoyed. Now, uh, why don't we move on to our interview? Because joining us today, we have Jacobin staff writer Megan Day and also uh, Seth Ackerman, who is the executive editor over at Jacobin. Is Seth with us as well? There we Uh, go. Yeah,
1: we got both of them.
0: Nice. Hey,
1: We're Seth. doing like a Bill Maher pa- panel <laughs> style type
5: show. How many squares can you fit on that screen?
1: I don't know. That's a good question.
0: All right. Well, um, let's get started because today marks the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. So we figured it would be interesting to have a discussion about where the left was 10 years ago and what's changed, um, you know, in in this date. Uh, Have there been any advancements when it comes to um, some of the causes uh, that Occupy Wall Street protesters were calling for? What were some of the flaws uh, with Occupy Wall Street? What are some of the improvements that the left has made since? Um, And so I'll go ahead and start with you, Seth, because uh, Kale actually sent us this lengthy panel that you hosted um, at the time regarding Occupy Wall Street. And, um, you know, I'm curious what your view of Occupy Wall Street was then and how things have changed.
5: Well, it was it was kind of a double uh, event uh, in the sense that uh, Occupy was obviously in itself this gigantic uh, event that um, really dominated the political landscape, certainly on the left, but also beyond the left uh, for a while. But then at the same time, you know, at a personal level, we were just getting Jacobin off the ground at that point. And Jacobin was and is, you know, a political project that had um, so many concerns that overlapped with uh, Occupy, so many issues that we were particularly interested in that, in one way or another, were brought up by uh, by the Occupy movement, either in sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. And uh, you know, one of the things that we had intended to do uh, in starting. The magazine. One of the things that at the very beginning we were really interested in doing was sort of intervening in the culture of the left that existed at the time, uh, and trying to reintroduce the left to some sort of older <clears throat> styles and mentalities uh, of left wing politics um, that had gotten forgotten in this um, in this culture, this left wing culture that had emerged in the U.S. over the previous few decades, uh, and that you could see very. On display very vividly uh, at Occupy, uh, which was a sort of horizontalist, anarchist, um, anti-state, very suspicious of institutions and and uh, and, uh, and certainly of the state uh, institutions, whether that's political parties or trade unions or whatever. So these are the kinds of issues that we were really interested in in intervening about or in uh, in intra-left debates, and then. Right, right at that time when we were starting uh, started to publish Jacobin, um, it was a sort of like a gigantic exhibit of all of the contradictions of the left at that point, um, including so many of the ones that we thought were really important to, to talk about and argue about. So, you know, the the it's, it, it's in many ways, you look at Occupy and you see a kind of a, a crossroads because on the one hand, it is... Um, it is entirely, you know, to paraphrase somebody else. It's stamped with the um, with the history of the left as it existed at that time, but it's also uh, was an event where the left was sort of struggling to change itself and discovering new uh, ways of conceiving what like political action is. So you had this event that was it had been remembered. It had been started by uh, it had been instigated by. A small group of like anarchists, including David Graeber, uh, he supposedly was the one who came up with the slogan uh, "We are the ninety-nine percent," and um, and so and these people were about as pu- as purist and, and as ideologically committed horizontalists as you could find, um, and their the culture of the political culture that of their way of doing politics really dominated the the atmosphere at Occupy. Um, and yet at the same time, the you could see that there was something already that was different, if only because of the nature of the, this, the content of, of Occupy. So like the style and, the, and the, the approach to politics was all the way that uh, the, the American left had been for, for, for so many decades. But the content really reflected the, the ways that the left was being forced to change. So it was... Uh, it was a, a movement that was, folk, first of all, the slogan, We Are the 99%, even though it was David Graeber uh, who came up with it. Um, he, I, I think that his, his, way, his ideas were a little bit different from some of his comrades. But it's a, such a majoritarian um, uh, sentiment, obviously. We are the 99%, uh, which is, it was controversial. You know, a lot of people didn't like the idea that we, we, were, that we our collective subject that we were creating at Occupy would identify in that way. Um but it was incredibly effective. I mean we are the ninety-nine percent, mm-hmm. I think was had a group had an enormous uh to, had enormous can take enormous credit for uh, whatever success Occupy had in sort of capturing the imaginations of people who were not immediately there. Um and so that can I yeah.
0: sorry, yeah, I I I wanted you to elaborate a little more on some of the objections to we are the ninety-nine percent. What was the rationale behind that?
5: Well, there were a few things, but I think that the main uh, objection was motivated from a position that uh, that said that w- that was basically a, that that wanted to view the antagonisms in American society as being more about uh, sort of uh, different parts of the working class, uh, some of which had been co opted into supporting capitalism and the status quo and others who are struggling to free themselves from the yoke of that, you know, of that status quo. And so they were very much, there's a, there's a vision of the left from people um, who tend to be, you know, on the anarchist left, uh, or at least that was the case at the time, um, whose vision is, is a lot less, um, you know, vertical. Of political antagonisms and a lot more horizontal and feel that it is papering over the the contradictions within, you know, the broad working class to talk about the 99%, which means that you're really saying that almost all of us are on the same side and just a tiny elite is on the other side. Uh, people objected to that a lot. And, you know, if you, and if you look at the kinds of issues that were brought out in Black Lives Matter, then you can see that there's, you know, the kind of logic that there there is there, you know, uh, but as far as the political, the strategic wisdom of, of framing a, a, a protest movement as we being the 99% and they being a small elite, which made a lot of sense and it resonated at the time because, of course, this was after the, the 2008 crisis and there was a lot of attention focused on the financial system and Wall Street and the protests, of course, began in downtown New York around near Wall Street so that it all resonated and it made a certain kind of sense and strategically and this is why i think that it was you know it was ingenious on, on david graber's part to have come up with it um whatever the truth may be uh of of the complexity of the antagonisms in american society which obviously don't run just between one percent and ninety nine percent um slogans are not there to you know be to be like phd dissertations uh, and capture like all the nuances and and Find the truths of the situation. Uh, what that captured, though, was an element of was a, was a feeling that was increasing. People were increasingly having that had not been something that that people on the left were necessarily would gravitate towards. It was this feeling that um, that really uh, our society was being sort of run by a small by a by a group of unrepresentative people who didn't care what we thought. You know, we had gone through uh, the Iraq war when a million people were on the streets demanding uh, that there not be a war, and they were just ignored. And then the outrages of the financial crisis and the housing crisis and um, the bailouts and all the rest of it, um, really so many people who were not political looked for the first time at what was going on, and this that kind of a critique that says, you know, our society is being won by a small number of people who really don't care what we think, despite the the claim that we live in a democracy, it made a lot of sense. So the slogan made a lot of sense. And so all of those currents were, I think, pushing the left at that moment to reevaluate uh, some of its like received wisdom that it accumulated over the previous decades.
1: Megan, what was your experience with Occupy? How did you, uh, how did you live through that time?
3: Well, I was in my final year uh, in college. um, And so I I participated in the Occupy movement that was on my campus, but I think I had a slightly different flavor. So I went to a liberal arts college that you might know from many um, scandals, Oberlin College. So we had an Occupy Oberlin. And (laughs) as you might expect, um, it was, I, you know, it was like, Seth has said that that Occupy in New York wasn't necessarily riven with I, the identity politics that would come to characterize the next sort of phase of life on the left. It was at Oberlin and that might just be because some of that stuff originated at Oberlin. So that was my memory of of on <laughs> Oberlin's campus. Um, um, so, or originated in, in these sort of in these elite academic spaces, right? So um, I did I did make my way to New York Um, I think that, um, it was, I think it was for Thanksgiving break. So it was just, you know, some hangers on essentially in Zuccotti park. Um, I was not there as necessarily a political participant. I was, I believe rolling on MDMA. I had a great time. It wasn't very political.
5: Um,
3: (laughs) so, but you know, That said, you know, actually the experience I'm making it sound like quite negative, but actually in the years that followed, I returned often to this question of the 99% versus 1% framing. And it was very clarifying for me in helping me find my way to the socialist left. Um, because at the time, I was in communities where there was an analysis of oppression that seemed to be increasingly complicated, and it almost seemed like oppression radiated from every person to every other person. Um, you might be able to uh, do some calculus on the basis of um, whether or not people checked certain identity boxes, but it was very hard to pin down and almost panoptic, and therefore very difficult to do anything about. Um, it wasn't a very encouraging worldview when it comes to actually affecting change um you know i I remember a few years later having conversations with people where i said occupy is now faded into the background right and i remember you know at this point um the style of identity politics that we see very commonly on the left today had just started to kind of leak out of like uh the academy and uh tumblr and the ngos and was becoming a little more mainstream and i remember saying like 99 versus one percent makes a lot more sense than most mm. of what I'm hearing. Um, and so I actually, my fondness for Occupy grew over the following years as I compared it to the trends that I saw um, mm. taking place on the left. And and I think that Occupy in that sense actually primed me for, um, it certainly primed me for Bernie. When Bernie ran was announced that he was running in 2015, I felt like I'd had a few years to think about 99% versus 1%, and I'd come to the conclusion that that was probably the framing we should use. Um, So I feel more sanguine about it now, actually, than I did um, at the time. But I wasn't, you know, like Seth, I wasn't actually involved with the intricacies of the Occupy movement because I was, you know, on an isolated elite campus in Ohio. So. um, So, well, that said, I mean, we should talk about like what the sort of pros and cons of that framing are. And, you know, over time, I think this I think that we've. I think the socialist movement has um, developed beyond the 99% versus 1% framing in a way that's actually very um, helpful and good, but I do think that that framing, that binary framing, is kind of a left populist framing that captures anti-elite sentiment and encourages people to um, think about a direct relationship between exploiters and exploited or oppressor and oppressed, a more binary um, and conflictual antagonistic relationship, which is actually a good basis for priming people ideologically for Marxism. That doesn't mean that everybody who participated in occupy eventually became a Marxist. Um, Certainly not. Um, But I do think that, you know, um, the rise of sort of, um, Marxist-inflected millennial socialism in the United States in the wake of Bernie actually owes a lot to the popularization of that rhetoric during Occupy as well. So that's my positive spin on the legacy of Occupy. There are also some, you know, negative things. Like, for example, I think that um, we haven't yet rid ourselves on the left of some of the worst habits that you saw um, dominating um, the actual sort of occupations. And and one of those um, would be a kind of Um, I guess anarcho-liberalism is the term that's often used, like uh, Bosker said something about, he Bosker Sankara actually wrote an article in September of 2011 about anarcho-liberalism and I'll read like a little excerpt of it from you. He said, um, the Marxist derived left was defeated while social democracy reconciled to the neoliberal framework. These are things that happened in the 20th century. Anarcho-liberalism, in quotes, um, sauntered in a weird middle ground between both camps. Its representatives had the modest ambitions of the social liberals of the center-left, but the flair for the dramatic associated with the most militant anarchists of the far-left. So that's his sort of diagnosis. I'm not even sure that we can really say for certain that Occupy had, like, modest social democratic aims, because I'm not sure that it was ever quite clear what occupy's aims were but probably if you polled people that would that would be true a lot of those people essentially wanted what became you know the Bernie Sanders platform but with the dramatic flair associated with anarchist direct action
0: yeah you know i i got the sense from occupy wall street that there was um finally in a very public way an acknowledgement of issues with our system right and i feel like it was a starting off point where then people kind of like dove into their own, like self political discovery. Right. Um, and I, I want you to talk a little more about the anarchy component of it because, and also what, what Seth um mentioned in regard to the lack of trust in institutions, which on one hand is understandable, considering institutions have, have failed people. But then you kind of fast forward to where we are today, where one of the major policies that's being um pushed for and championed by, socialist is Medi- by socialists is Medicare for All, which would rely heavily on the very institutions that, you know, maybe Occupy Wall Street at the time was um, incredibly distrusting toward. Um, Seth, can you weigh in on that a little bit?
5: Yeah, well, I think that to some extent, you can. we continue to see those same uh, disagreements play out uh, in the years since then. But I feel like um, there was if you compare the situation today on those issues like the one that you just mentioned about you know Medicare for all being a, a solution uh, to a problem that relies on big institutions, obviously the state, the Medicare system all, all that kind of stuff um, the I feel like in the, in the intervening years on those kinds of issues there has been kind of a, a pretty clear one side one argument and the other side, reconciled itself to just being in the minority. Um, and so that was progress. I mean, this is why I think that when we talk about all of the things that were that we don't like about Occupy, uh, those very things that we don't like about, we didn't like about Occupy at the time, actually, by being there, by existing, I think that in the long run, they contributed enormously to pushing the left towards, where, towards the kinds of things that we do like. And that's because and this is always the way that I think movements work is that, you know, movements try to do things that are stupid and then they have to deal with the consequences and they in grappling with the consequences and, and arguing and figuring out why this isn't working and why things are going wrong. Um, the, you know, the, that's how, that's how movements move forward and how they make progress. And at the time that it's happening, um, it's incredibly frustrating, but, but, in retrospect, I, I feel like the, all of the things that were so obnoxious at the time actually ended up playing a really important role because by being what I consider to be the normal or obnoxious or just wrong-headed, um, they sort of took the ideas that we, we a Jacobin, this nascent Jacobin, wanted to critique, and they put those ideas that we wanted to critique sort of to the test uh, and in front of a, a mass, you know an audience of the whole world. And, you know, and then it was a test uh, and we could all see how well or badly they worked. And I feel like in some ways, you know, we ended up, our side of those arguments ended up winning uh, most of those arguments pretty decisively, gradually took time. It's never complete and so on. But we ended up winning those arguments and we won them in the fairest way. It was, you know, let's try your way. Let's try our way and see what happens. And the trying of their way was not always really pleasant to deal with because often it meant we were doing things that we thought some of us thought were misguided. Um, but if we hadn't done them, then there would have been no fair test. And you could see that that over the over the course of the year or two, the year really just a year after Occupy, so many of the people who were who you know, people, my, me and my comrades be argue, had, were arguing with during Occupy. And they were taking very, like, fiercely entrenched positions in favor of a very hardcore version of their type of kind of horizontalist politics on every issue across the board. And then you'd run into them, or you'd see their byline somewhere, six months, seven months later, and they had completely flip, flipped there. They were now echoing the kinds of arguments that you were making. That, was hap- that happened over and over and over again. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I think for that, we have all of the stuff that was was annoying to deal with at the time, we have that to thank for
1: that. You know, I just find it uh, shocking that you guys are ignoring the real legacy of Occupy in that it gave us Tim Pool. Tim Pool made his name God. live streaming <laughs> Occupy when the mainstream media ignored it uh, in those first few days. Um, so yeah, I was working at a news organization at the time and uh, that was a big deal. So, you know, typical Jacobin... Uh, types ignoring ignoring Tim Pool, uh, but Megan, uh, I, I want to ask you because you know we, we, you talked about the the framing of of the one percent versus the ninety nine percent and how effective it was as a sort of left populist um, uh, rhetorical device or slogan, um, and I agree. I mean, I remember at the time it was very influential at me at the, uh, as well. Um, but uh, I want to I want to ask about. The the limits to uh to that, especially in uh, you know with regards to your piece about um, classism and class, um, and how why the why like class is is the more effective kind of theoretical frame.
3: Yeah. So the one percent and the ninety nine percent, like I said, is like a good. Um, I guess you could say it's a sort of good transitional ideology toward. Um, Marxist socialism, but it doesn't, it's not guaranteed to get you there. So uh, the main distinction between the two is this, the 1% and the 99% is measured, but on the basis of like how much wealth you have. That's what the 1% is. And then everybody below them is the 99%. And there's some sort of cutoff line. Um, and you can sort of like sort people into above and below. Um, what's good about that is that, like I said, it's binaristic. Um, it has a kind of like fundamental antagonism It suggests that what's good for the 1% is bad for the 99%. And that's that's a decent framing. Um, The problem is that it's not actually relational. So in, you know, Marxist um, socialist thought, um, the relation, the working class is defined on the and the capitalist class are defined on the basis of their relationship to each other, not how much wealth or money uh, one has compared to the other. Um, So that that relationship is that. A few people own, you know, what we call the means of production, you know, factories, tools, land, the stuff that it takes to make the things that society needs to run. And then everybody else doesn't own either that stuff or the or the means of their own subsistence. Um, You know, they're not living on farms anymore. And so they have to work um they have to work for they have to sell their labor to the people who own the means of production and it's this mutual um dependence actually on the worker and the capitalist that actually defines capitalism as a system of production the reason that's important to understand is because the understanding the structure of capitalism that way actually points to a way out because capitalists and workers are mutually dependent on one another. That means that the working class can theoretically withhold its labor, and that would tank profits, which is the only thing that capitalists care about, um, you know, because they have to continually be reinvesting their profits and to stay afloat. Um, and that through that mechanism, you could actually force dramatic social transformation. So that basically, the Marxist sort of analysis of how uh, society works gives you an answer for what you ought to do. You should organize the working class into durable institutions that can actually act as workers and exploit the leverage, the automatic leverage that work, working people have in their relationship with capitalists. Ninety-nine um, percent versus one percent doesn't give you that. Actually, you have to work. You have to work to get people toward um, that understanding. Uh, from 99% versus 1%, and that's why even though it was a great framing and it was uh, in a lot of ways and it was um, majoritarian, like Seth said, um, which was good and cut against what would be eventually be some of the later bad habits of the left. This kind of like endless search for um, you know marginality, a kind of obsession with with the fringes, right? Um, so that, that was good. Um, but it didn't really, um, give you an answer for how you ought to go about organizing. And you could see that when you look back at what actually happened during Occupy, um, clearly certainly there were people in the mix who, um, would have been able to articulate this for you, but it wasn't fundamentally about organizing the working class into durable institutions that could strike at the heart of capitalism itself, that could strike that could hit capitalism in its Achilles' heel, right? Um, and so that's that's its kind of main drawback. There's there's an additional problem, and this relates to my piece, which is. Which is that um, when you're not thinking about the relationship between workers and capitalists, you're not thinking sort of materially or structurally. And so you can end up thinking culturally uh, about things, which which can just lead you into Mm. an endless culture war. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, and (laughs) I can think (laughs) of a few examples. Right. Definitely. So. On the left, I mean, for example, on the left, this is where you get sort of internecine co- constant conflicts on the left about who's dressing too posh and who's going on vacation and all of this stuff and whether or not they're actually displaying the proper sort of um, like personal etiquette or moral rectitude to actually even be considered socialists, right? Whose side are you on, really? Um, that kind of thing. But there's actually an even bigger problem, which is that it is can be a valve to um, right-wing populism, and I say bigger in the sense that it has more dramatic consequences, not that it's necessarily common, um, but, you know, the right-wing also has its own versions of, of populism. I actually, I'm going to outsource this real quick to, um, to an article that Nancy Fraser or an interview with Nancy Fraser that we just published in Jacobin, and I sent this to Kale. Cale, can you pull that up? I feel like it's relevant to this conversation and i want to show people do you know what i'm talking about give me me one
2: second kale scrambling (laughs) he's scrambling (laughs) just continue for like one minute continue talking yeah
3: sure okay Uh. this no no problem okay so um so the problem is the problem is essentially that um on the left left wing populism has the sort of 99% versus 1% framing and right wing populism looks somewhat similar in the sense that it also is about the people who are being preyed upon by some blood sucking parasites but what Nancy Fraser says that is that right wing populism is defined by a kind of um tripartite identitarianism that's the way she puts it which is that there is at the top um there Tell are me more. there are the elites um, they are, you know, not necessarily all rich people. It's like vaguely defined. This is the problem when you don't talk about capitalists specifically. It's just the elites at the top. Um, and then at the bottom, there are also at the bottom of society. There are also freeloaders. There are welfare queens. There are immigrants who are sponging off of our, uh, you know, social programs. Um, you know, there are um, uh, if you ask JD Vance there are childless people who aren 't even contributing to the future of our society who dare to have a say mm. um, you know and and you know um, queer people um, you know all kinds of you can you can put all people all kinds of people in that kind of bottom bracket of like freeloaders at the bottom of society and the right wing the the logical extension of right-wing populism is that there is a conspiracy of elites at the top and blood-sucking freeloaders at the bottom who are engaged in a project of squeezing the people from both ends and the honest people need to rise up against them. And this is, you know, this is the basis of all essentially fascist ideologies. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's important for us to note that left-wing populism is very distinct from right-wing populism. But when people are not clear about what you're referring to, when you put sort of anti-establishment and anti-elite sentiment out there, you do leave the door open for explanations that are fundamentally anti-socialist in nature and can actually proffer anti-solidaristic explanations that interfere with the project that we're trying to accomplish, which is to organize the working class in solidarity across lines of difference in a majoritarian coalition against the capitalist class. So uh, that's a latent potential and it's a problem with left-wing populism. It's not, I'm not gonna say, and watch out, there's red-brownism afoot everywhere you look. That's not the implication that I'm making. Just that there's some clarity is necessary um, because 99% versus 1% gets us, um, part of the way there, but it doesn't get us all of the way there. And there's like an odd little, um, like, um, wormhole into a different realm, potentially embedded in it.
1: Yeah. yeah pointy I, I headed that... academics. <laughs>
3: right, the, right, right,
1: right, right. Why do they call them pointy headed academics? I don't know where that's
3: always, to. I've always wondered that. Does anyone know why their heads are supposed to be pointy? No idea.
5: They're like eggs. So, I it's it's a uh, compound mystery.
0: <laughs> mm. Well, Megan, I think what you're saying is actually um, really, really important. And what I've noticed is, you know, there's this sense of frustration and powerlessness, you know, on the left sometimes. And when you look at what's worked historically, right, um, organizing labor unions and, you know, how that. And and the applied pressure to the political system to actually change things, how that's worked. When you talk about that, some there's like a portion of the left that like rejects it because time is of the essence. Uh, we don't have enough time to unionize or to organize, and so they like to rely on more of the performative stuff, right? Which is. You know, not to get into a long discussion about it because I, I personally would like to avoid it. Um, you know, like the AOC dress, I personally found a little cringy because it's more of the performative stuff rather than uh, that doesn't really get us anywhere. I mean, it could spark a conversation, but in terms of power and accumulating power and finding ways to organize and use that power to to um, apply pressure and get what we want, like that's something that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time and people you know, are a little, I don't know, uh, less willing to be accepting of that as being the only way to do things. So does that in any way help the right-wing populace who might, uh, you know, pay lip service to the frustrations that uh, people feel toward the elites, but clearly have very different solutions to the issues that we're, we're facing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't I, I think any lack of clarity helps right wing pop, populists and and really any lack of clarity doesn't work in our favor. Actually, Cale, can you throw up that meme? Um, I, I do not claim to know the providence of this, but this is uh, I think is a nice encapsulation of like this is a slightly different diagram than. The Nancy Fraser um, definition, the sort of what she called the tripartite identitarianism of right wing populism, but but this is um, this is something that I guess some kind of some right wing populist put together. I don't know where it comes from. I saw it on Twitter, the, but this is okay. Non rich and rich. Um, this is essentially what we're, you're saying is one percent and ninety nine percent here, and then they're saying this is the wrong enemy, and then they're saying if you go over here, you can see that the right enemy. Um, is that some some rich people and non rich people both are good they're earners they're entrepreneurs and they're protectors but then you have the bad people who are predators cronies and rent seekers who are um preying on the sort of like body of the good upstanding people of society um and these are these are being counterposed in this uh, meme but you can see that this meme is actually targeted toward people who already have a sensibility about that the fact that there's some sort of elite that is preying on the people that needs to be opposed and this meme is just educating them out of the 1% versus 99% framing into a like you know very dangerous uh form of uh, framing that you know helps on, only the right um and so my point being that there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with 99% versus 1%. It's just that it's vague. And so our responsibility is to actually do political education around what the real axis of of antagonism and conflict in society is between capitalists and workers, so that people are armed with that explanation before they encounter stuff like this, and then develop all kinds of, um, you know, horrifying ideas about why society is the way it is and who ought to pay for it.
1: Yeah, that's why we hate Bosker, you know, He's the he's the real enemy. But uh, Seth, I want to ask you about a couple things you mentioned. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate the most about Jacobin's political project is one thing that you mentioned, which apparently was uh, one of the founding ideals from the very beginning, which is that um, that there are certain lessons to be taken from. Um, an older style of politics like I one of the things I always tell people is like we don't need a new like you know we need new solutions for today's problems or like, the new solutions are overrated man we just need we need the old solutions to today's problems um, and uh, so c- can you expand on that and 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 as well as you know you mentioned that movements uh, typically have to try out kind of Bad habits before they're uh, you know they can eventually kind of move on from them because uh, um, you know we're in a move we're in a moment right now after after Bernie's defeat of probably some bad habits so like what are the what are the uh, um, what are the things that can be shed um, in order to come emerge from this stronger, pure and uh, leaner and meaner.
5: Well, I mean, I think that the the recipes, like you said, I mean, I totally agree that with this this idea that, uh, we need new solutions, uh, is, that's really kind of the heart of the problem. Um, most of the solutions we need are old solutions. And that's why at the beginning, <clears throat> in the early days of Jacobin, we sometimes refer to ourselves as the new old left. Um, mm. and the, the, the problem with, with, uh, having that recognition of that that's the case, uh, is that, you know, just recognizing that, that it's the case, just recognizing that these older ideas, um, are probably in the long run have more to offer us in, in figuring out how to get where we want to go. Uh, just realizing that doesn't, doesn't, um, doesn't get you there because there was a reason in the past there, there were reasons why the, the old ideas, the old ways, uh, ended up being uh, pushed aside. And it usually, um, was not just because a bunch of dumb people came along uh, and and replaced the good ideas with the dumb ideas. But usually it was because, you know, the world had changed in some way and it made it difficult for the the, the, the old ideas that are fundamentally right to keep doing, to keep uh, uh, playing the, the role that they played. Uh, you know, things had, things did have to change, but maybe uh, the old ways had to be expressed or or executed in in new ways or, you know, something like that. So the, the problem is like, for example, if we talk about, as like Megan was talking about a minute ago, uh, that if we're standing in Zuccotti Park during Occupy Wall Street, and we want to, to communicate uh, to people who are new to the left, that, um, you know, that the, that the, our, the strongest point of power that we have is not ultimately uh, occupying this park, but is you know, withholding our labor collectively uh, because that's, the, that's what drives the system. That's where our real leverage comes from. Um, that's a great thing to do. And in fact, it just it, uh, brings back uh, memory just now that right in the middle of Occupy – Or maybe right at the very end of it, I wrote an article about. um, It was kind of an extended book review of a book about the disappearance of the strike. It was written by a left wing labor lawyer uh, whose name uh, is escaping me right now. But the the purpose of the article, from my point of view, was it was to try to explain to uh, this new generation of leftists or this new group, you know, this new this new milieu of leftist young people who are now attracted to the left, but who only mainly knew the left through the prism of these, uh, kind of horizontalist, uh, ways of doing things. I wanted to explain to them, what is a strike? Why is it so powerful? Why, why does it disappear? You know, how does it work? What is what, are the, what is the anatomy of it? Um, and that's, you know, so I guess that in that sense I was doing what, you know, what Megan says is the right thing, but on the other hand, uh, and I do think that that's, that was, the right thing for me to be writing at that moment, you know, but I, but at the same time, if you're standing in Zuccotti park with a bunch of, you know, 22 year olds, uh, who, you know, maybe let's say they have a lot of debt. Um, maybe they find that some of them are sick and they struggle to pay for their health care or whatever it is, um, to tell them, you know, that the real, their real power is withholding their labor is correct. Um, but at the moment, at the moment that we're in, Um, there's a reason why we're not all organized into unions or or, or there's a reason why you have to explain to people, to 22 year olds, what a union is, what a strike is the very basics that, that their counterparts 50 years ago would have known just by living in the world. There are reasons for that, you know? So like it's, it's, we, we are, are the, the task that we're facing is sort of, really climbing out of a hole within a hole you know we first we have to climb out of the first hole so that we can actually climb out of the, the hole that can, it can get us back up on the ground and that is and what I mean by that is the first hole that we have to and this is what really Jacobin was trying to do at, at the beginning it was trying to climb out of like the hole just to get into the into the, the hole uh, which was um, to try to to try to just revive these old ideas that were just outside of people's minds that you just get let people understand uh, what it is, what how this other way of, of being on the left or this other conception of left wing politics how it works, and that's not actually. And it took a little while to realize this, but it's not actually going to, um, uh, you know, just communicating this to them is not going to change their their mentality. It's not going to change the way they do things, but it will. It could possibly plant a seed, mm-hmm. so that at some point when, in the future, when conjunctural events have evolved in some way that was unpredictable and. And for some reason, you people find themselves in a situation where now they are in a position to be able to implement, to, to carry out, you know, to, to execute the, the, the logic of this, this older way of doing politics. Then they've got those ideas handy. But I mean, it's, it's, it's I think it's um, there's the tragedy is that, you know, the, all the things that Megan was just saying are true, that the real power that those, you know, that the working class has comes from uh, our ability to withhold labor. But we have been placed in a position where we are, we sort of that power has been uh, kind of neutralized by people being scattered, uh, the changing nature of technology and work and uh, residential patterns, or whatever whatever like um, things you want to account for it, so that uh, so that it makes it hard to you know the the truth um, doesn't seem doesn't sound doesn't ring like the truth to a lot of people at the moment. And you just have to keep you just have to keep uh, hammering away at those ideas, uh, however uh, strange or even irrelevant they may sound to some of the people that you 're talking to because again those ideas and i 've seen i 've seen this happen over the last uh, over the last ten years um, because you, when you least expect it, you find yourself in a situation where those old ideas suddenly are things that you can actually act on right now. Mm-hmm. And if those ideas are at hand and people have some familiarity with them, then then they can act on them. And then you say, well, thank God, you know, we had the foresight to be talking about these things 10 years ago, even though it seemed completely irrelevant.
0: You know, um, y- I want to bring up a super chat question that I think is relevant uh, in the interview. So uh, Eclectic writes in and says, I checked Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, They don't have an Occupy uh, anniversary on their landing page. Did none of their thousands of journalists pitch the idea? Did editors reject it? Is it unwitting establishment bias? And, you know, before I give you guys an opportunity to answer that, just want to note that the media's coverage of Occupy Wall Street at the time was incredibly dismissive. Um, You know, they didn't care to really understand what it was about. Uh, You know, they just minimized the, you know, specific concerns that some of the Occupy Wall Street protesters um, were voicing um, during some of these interviews. Uh, Even after that, Awful 2008 economic collapse. Even after the figures were coming in in regard to crippling student loan debt at the time, uh, they just pretended like it was a bunch of young people who really had no interest in doing anything productive. They were just, you know, trying to have fun, <laughs> just trying to cause trouble at Zuccotti Park and nothing more. Um, so, for me personally, I, I'm not surprised that they have nothing on their landing pages about the the protest. But
3: what do you guys think? Well, I wasn't paying attention to. I was. I wasn't paying attention to the media coverage at the time because I was a young person who was just trying to cause trouble in Zucotti Park. Well, which is to say that when I went down there one time, I was not like a serious participant. But
1: maybe they weren't so wrong. They weren't
3: so wrong. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's they weren't. My, so that's my smart. bad. Um, but Seth, I mean, you you must remember the media coverage at the time.
5: Yeah, um, you know, I think that it was. I think that's, that that is, it's true that the the overall tone of the coverage was pretty dismissive. I mean, there was a recognition that something was going on that was important, um, but it's true. I mean, it becomes, it gets hard sometimes to criticize because some of the things that the media were dismissive of were things that, you know, some of us within the movement were arguing, uh, you know, were, were not such great ideas or not such uh, good um uh, Approaches, you know. One thing that that occurs to me is that that I haven't really heard very much in the discussions that I've had so far, like this one um, about Occupy, is, is just I'm just remembering that that the the big issue that actually dominated most of these, like the specific concrete issue that dominated so many of the of the arguments within Occupy, was ar- around the uh, so-called demands committee and the whole concept of demands. Uh, That was the sort of the key word. And that ended up being the, the approach that the the people in the media generally used to criticize the movement that there were, that they were not made. What what are your demands? What are you asking for? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the sort of implication was that what the, you know, these, these anarchist hippies ought to be doing is dressing in suits and starting a think tank or something like that. And, you know, like publishing policy papers um, but they but within Occupy, there was there was a ferment over the question of whether there ought to be demands and which ended up being kind of like a, a symbolic fight over a larger disagreement about what kind of movement it ought to be and so pe- some people started a demands committee or a demand demands working group uh, to you know, because anybody could start a working group and you could call it the occupy working group the demands the demands working group so some people were like well we're going to start a demands working group because there was such a neuralgic opposition to the idea of occupy having or putting forward any demands from the on the part of the you know the people at the heart of that that anarchist culture who had organized it um so you know a bunch of people who were dissatisfied with that they started this working group and it became a whole saga it became like a uh, you know, with a classic within the structures of this non-structured horizontalist um, uh, apparatus, uh, all of the Byzantine-like parliamentary maneuvers that you associate with like Trotskyist parties—you uh, know, where one party is like uh, is, is is doing an entryist thing to another party, and they're using these complex uh, uh, parliamentary maneuvers to try to one to take over the the whole organization. Things like that in the in this horizontalist movement that supposedly didn't have any of those things that was going on in spades over the, the struggle over this idea of demands and it's so funny because in retrospect you look at I mean you look at where the left is now and where the disagreements and the and the fights are um, and the idea of demands I mean if anything the, the left has become kind of hyper demand oriented uh, generally I think it's a good thing but you know it, it, possibly even it's exaggerated it's over there's overly an overly uh, strong focus on coming up with a five point plan and demanding that these five things change as the solution to whatever problem it is that we're, that we're protesting. Um, and so the, when the media was criticizing or dismissing Occupy, they tended actually to use this critique that, that sort of overlapped with an internal critique that was, that was being voiced by people who generally saw things more the way the Jacobin did. Um, and you know, uh, in in retrospect, it's funny because you know even those of us who were generally sympathetic to the idea that movements should have demands at least as one tactic, um, we you know I look back and you realize that it would have been kind of ridiculous for Occupy Wall Street to have demands like specific demands like you know we in Zuccotti Park are going to demand a you know percent financial transactions tax or something. It would have been it would have been silly. Um, but the fight was over what kind of a left we were going to have, really more than a fight over what you know position paper Occupy Wall Street was or wasn't going to be putting out.
0: Mm. All right. Well, Seth Ackerman and Megan Day, everyone check out their work over at Jacobin. And thank you for taking the time to uh, talk about this with us today. Hopefully you'll be back soon.
3: Thanks. Anna, could I, say, could I say one more thing? It uh, yeah. could just be like bonus material if you want to cut it out or whatever. Because we didn't really... Say it. Because I should have said this earlier. No it. We didn't... We meant... We were talking... Uh, we sort of mentioned the fact that I had this piece, the problem isn't classism, it's class. And then I didn't, I didn't actually address why I think that's relevant to this question of the left populist framing of the 99% versus 1%. And the connection that I see that I just wanted to mention before we like you know, all get off is that when you don't have a structural analysis that identifies the relationship between what are being called the 1% and the 99% or the exploiters and the exploited or the oppressors and the oppressed, then you really kind of struggle to locate the grievance. And then I gave you like a, a you know a sort of long treatise on what I think the right wing can do to exploit that ambiguity for their own purposes and insert their own grievances. But that's not just, not just um, the right wing that does this. I mean, liberalism can also take advantage of this ambiguity to posit its own grievances. Um, and so what we've seen is with the rise of a certain style of representation heavy um liberal identity politics which i think has intensified it's been around for a long time but it's intensified in the last like five seven i want to say like seven years or so like since occupy then then it starts to proffer that there is the grievance is actually um similar in structure to the grievances that you might have about certain other expressions of like bigotry or prejudice racism and sexism and homophobia and so on and that's one thing that i'm noticing now is the rise of a kind of classism discourse which is like yeah sure i mean as i I note in the article certainly it's the case that if you've ever been privy to the private conversations of. Uh, rich people are certainly plenty of their public comments as well, you will see that there is plenty of prejudice. But that's not the primary grievance, actually. That's just like, for the most part, that is um, downstream of the relationship of domination and exploitation between these two groups of people. And if anything, it's usually a rationalization um, that wealthy people come up with to explain why they deserve to exist, you know, at the top of society um, and why other people deserve to be down at the bottom, right, sort of make sense of the world. Um, But the actual grievance is the exploitation itself, which is what we call class. I mean, class is a distinction that doesn't need to exist. And so that's what I mean by the problem isn't classism, it's class. If we eliminated classism but retained class, that would be a very polite system of exploitation. Um, And uh, what we should be doing is trying to be trying to eliminate that system of exploitation itself. That's the connection that I wanted to make between the ambiguity of the left populist framing and uh, the article that I wrote. So it's not just the predations of the right that we should worry about. It's certainly the predations of the center, the liberal center as well.
0: All right. Well, thank you for explaining that. And uh, everyone, check out uh, the article that Megan Day is referencing. Um, There it is. The problem isn't classism, it's class, which you can read over at Jacobin. And again, thank you to both of you for joining us today.
3: Thanks a lot. Man. All right.
1: Such smarty pants. Very precise in their thinking and language. I always love the precision of their analyses.
0: People are saying they're very precise. What's up, Kale?
2: We got the most precise people on the left. Very um, precise these big of, at Megan day. What <laughs> speaking, speaking of precision, you had what? to just mention base and superstructure earlier. And now we've had two hours of the chat debating what, in fact, is basin superstructure. They've been asking us for an explainer. They really want us to know what basin superstructure. Should we superstructure
1: do it for next about. week? I've been struggling to come up with the topics because the news, the news, the news sucks, and there's nothing to do. Maybe we could just do the, maybe we just do the decode next week. We could do a two hander, Kale.
2: Well, I, I figured, I figured we could talk about basin superstructure now for a little bit, but I see the thing is, I'm probably going to use ga cohen's definition of basin superstructure and oh, i hate I it when you do that where, yeah i don't know where my more ba- my ga cohen is hey ben can you give me my my ga cohen um so i could uh, oh I there he oh, is like, all right so now oh okay. hey i hope everyone what do you guys do are you guys uh man? are you
1: guys like having fun are you guys like uh what do you guys do? did you guys like snuggle and watch a movie together what'd you guys do
2: that's later no, no, I mean, it's, it's like it's all GA code all the time. It's like really boring. Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay. Okay. So everyone's gonna open up to chapter eight. Uh um, like Jesus <laughs> Kale,
1: can we go oh off for a
2: drink or something? He's like, nope, uh, no. Base and superstructure powers and rights. This is so,
1: the nerdiest thing I've, I've ever been a part of. I want you guys to know. This is not yep. my style of shit. Okay. This is like the <laughs> nerdiest shit I've ever I've ever had to be uh, exposed to. There's two ways
2: it. to think about base yeah. and superstructure. Can, oh my god you could either say that everything that's not the base is the superstructure or you could say everything I think, I think i'm out of this bit this is
1: good yeah it's too nerdy for ben uh, oh my god we we lost him. Next,
2: next week next week
0: all right uh well uh thank you to everyone who's watching thanks for supporting the show and um please make sure to well Likely patrons. But if you're not, um, subscribe to our channel over at YouTube, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag. And uh as always, we'll see you guys next week with another episode of the show. Nando, before we go, any final words?
1: Uh LJ Wombology says the base is Ben burges the superstructure is logic and arguments. I think that's a good way to end the show.
0: <laughs> love it. All right, have a great weekend, everyone. We love you.